Your health is our priority. Each series, it's our goal to make sure that we provide you with experts and guests that offer multiple perspectives so that you feel supported, empowered, and less alone. Like the work we do? Buy us a cup of coffee. Or tea. You can leave us a tip over at coffee.com slash the hip podcast, which is ko-fi.com slash the HIP podcast, or with the link in our show notes. When you buy us a cup of coffee, you not only support the work we do, but also gain access to early releases and downloadable resources. Again, that's coffee.com slash the hip podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Health It's Personal. We are in our coping mini-series and just met with the wonderful Allison Deneen. She is the author of Notes from Your Therapist and has this wonderful Instagram account of the same name with this incredible cult following where she shares images of handwritten notes of advice from a therapist, and it has resonated with so many people, including us. Our conversation today was a lot on coping with the current situation of the world, with grief, and just how to have those conversations and understand your own feelings. It was almost like a therapy session today for us. (laughs) It really was. Yeah, we got to sneak in our own questions. And um, what I like about her process is that she shares kind of her perspective and how she deals with grief and loss and different concepts. And then hopefully helps you reflect on yours opposed to giving advice on what you should or shouldn't do, which kind of allows you to be more open with yourself. I was going to say she she kind of practices what she teaches too by that modeling behavior. So she's very big on showing rather than telling, which is very useful because that's one of the best and most intimate ways that humans learn, especially younger people, but even adults, I think. Just about every quote in her book resonated with me. And I think that's why so many people love her Instagram, because she just puts these ideas out there. And I don't know how she does it, but it can resonate with every single person that reads it. There's like this inner human connection. One of her quotes is growing up, never being allowed to say no or disappoint an adult in any way meant that when I left home, I had zero practice setting boundaries or handling someone being upset with me. And I think that's such an awful way to start your adulthood. And um, I can Mm -hmm. relate to that so much. And it took a lot of work to be able to do that and feel really whole and understand myself and know how to Um, interact with other people. And that was a lot of the work I did for probably my whole entire 20s (laughs) (laughs) that I should have been doing when I was younger so that I was prepared when I left. And I think every quote in the book is hashtag relatable. So (laughs) that's why it's big. You know, we we all have these shared experiences, but, you know, depending on how they manifested in our own personal lives, they can look a little different, but we can relate on the basic level of, you know, Oh, I'm not the only one. I'm not alone. Another great quote from the book that really stood out to us was, what if no one told you there was a path a person can take other than the one people want you to? And I think that's also a recurring theme in our podcast. (laughs) We're showing all sorts of paths and perspectives. Yeah, so many different ways that you can live a life. But sometimes we're told that this is the way that you do it. And it takes a long time to untangle that messed up message. 
For sure. And I think it, you know, I also think about identity to personal identity. Uh, we talked a lot about just wanting to be ourselves in this world. We want to be more us. And, you know, conversations that we had about sexual orientation and gender identity really come into play, especially with this quote. Um, and just, you know, what if you didn't know there was those other options? You know, would you have ever discovered that? Or would you have discovered that facet of yourself? And that's so important to me. Um, and just learning about those other options, those other paths that you could take to become more you. Yes. She spoke a lot about how something she noticed in herself as a young person and recognizes in many people is this desire to want to be more of yourself and find validation in who you are and feel wholly accepted. And first of all, we have to work on doing that for ourselves. And then also, you know, it's this concept of being able to find your group and these people that really do accept you and being your truest self and how that's not the default uh, situation in our households as we grow up usually. So um, that's something that we have to overcome. First of all, we appreciated everything that she said and did and everything that she's exploring in life and continuing to learn. And like we said earlier, she's modeling what she hopes that change will be in the world and making the world a better place just by living that. And I think one of the biggest things that she does is that she knows she's not perfect at everything and that's okay. There are others who are good at those certain things. And what she does is try to refer people to those others. <laughs> um, so, you know, I love that I'm passionate about this and that, but maybe not this particular topic. So let's find someone who is a good fit for that. And it reminded me of what Wendy said when we talked to her way back in the anxiety series. And she said, finding a therapist is like finding the right shoe to fit your feet. And some people will just give up and they'll be like, I'm just going to walk around without shoes. <laughs> so might as well find the right brand, the right shoe, the right fit. <laughs> what I think is so beautiful about her book is that she's had so much loss in her life and she shares that right up front. Yeah. A lot of her quotes and a lot of her advice stems from this gigantic amount of loss. And when I read it, I felt very emotional at the beginning of mm -hmm. the book because I just can't imagine it. Um, but she's given this beautiful gift to so many people because she's been able to unlearn the things that she was taught as a young child and figure out what it is to know herself and to truly grieve. I'm so thankful that she did that work so that we can relate to it and um, work on ourselves in that way. Yeah, one of my favorite quotes from her book in relation to that is so much of our pain comes from having never been allowed to grieve what we've lost. And this is such an important conversation, especially right now, losing so many things in our lives aside from the obvious of close family members and that reality, but losing out on this life that we've been experiencing over the last however long and seeing it come to a stop is shocking. And such a great point that she made is that the people who have gone through loss and now see the value in small things in life and appreciate life so much more are the ones who gave in to grief and allowed themselves to grieve and feel those emotions because then they could appreciate the positive sides of life and all of the happiness that we're all capable of. 
And so this quote kind of brings up that even though grief is painful, it can be more painful to not grieve and then to not be able to experience all the wonderful things in life that come from having that difficult experience. Having gone through that work, you know, um, both of you have lost a parent and I've lost a parent as well, but not in the same way. And for the longest time, I didn't know how to process those feelings. And it wasn't until I saw it as a true loss and was able to grieve that loss that I feel like I got to the other side of it. You talked about ambiguous loss, Sean, and I never realized how painful that can be and how the same grieving process often applies to that type of loss as well. Um, And so I thought that was really valuable. And a lot of people are facing that kind of loss right now. And I think if we don't process those emotions in some of the similar ways that we're going to come out on the other side of this pandemic and be all tangled up inside. As we brought up during the interview, we're all kind of dealing with that ambiguous loss right now, such as I lost, you know, basically a year of our lives. We've lost that, you know, it's not like what we did and we can't go back to the way things were. So how do we move on from there? We have to start addressing that and start kind of living through that. You know, boys are raised especially so of not feeling any emotions, you know, tough it out, you know, suck it up. (laughs) pull yourself up by the bootstraps, all those things. And that's something that we need to, I think, talk about more often as well. Not today. That's an ongoing conversation. It's going to be a lot of work. but (laughs) Well, you know what, Sean, we didn't even bring that up. And she was talking about so much of feeling what you feel and understanding your emotions. And um, that must be so challenging for a lot of men who were never allowed to feel at all. Well, as we learned today, it's it's everyone too. We're all kind of going through that. But you know, that's a whole more nuanced conversation, I guess, that we could continue having. Once we once we all embrace our emotions, then we can get to those. (laughs) (laughs) We can start separating it out. (laughs) Yeah, big tasks first. (laughs) Allison has so much wisdom to give us. And it's all through her personal experience, which helps us to connect to her and connect to ourselves. And I find that so valuable. And I'm so thankful that she was able to speak with us today. So I hope you enjoy this episode of our coping mini series. So grab a cup of tea and enjoy. Health is understanding what you need. Being informed. Finding that balance of mental and physical. Building yourself a support system. Figuring things out on my own and not letting it hold me back. You do kind of have to advocate for yourself. Because health, it's personal. Welcome, Allison. We're so glad that you're here and sharing your story and the exciting release of your upcoming book, Notes from Your Therapist. The book is a refreshing collection of affirmations that gives readers permission to feel all the emotions, no matter how uncomfortable, which stemmed from your engaging Instagram account. Before we dive into the book, we'd love to hear about your journey as a professional and what led you to care so deeply about this work. Oh my gosh. I think it's kind of funny because that was probably three, almost four years ago when I started. And the truth is, I don't think I really realized the potential of Instagram. So I just kind of started it in this super small way. And I was thinking of it as just like a way to kind of communicate with people I literally knew in my community. 
And I didn't even do things like hashtags. I didn't really understand what the point of that was for, for me. Like I didn't understand how that would relate for me. And so I was just kind of starting to talk about things that interested me so that people who were looking for a therapist would kind of get a feel for what I was like and what I was about. I don't know. It just kind of went along like that for a while. I really enjoyed having a chance to kind of talk a little bit more about the things that I'm interested in. And it just kind of worked in this kind of dynamic way. People would um, start to follow me and the fans started to grow kind of slowly. I could sort of tell what people really responded to, which particular things in my subject, which I, so you probably could tell that the main thing that I love to talk about is emotions and emotional neglect and relationships. I started to see over time, and because I like talking about all of this stuff, oh, which were the things that people really responded to and maybe even like really wanted to hear more about. So in kind of a funny way, it sort of shaped my Instagram, like it shaped where I was going, but it also kind of shaped my private practice. I don't know how to describe it. It's just kind of this creative dynamic process of interaction with the world and like what you've got that people need, Mm -hmm. which is something else that I really like to talk to people about is people are really interested in the subject of how can I be more me in the world? And partly I think it's about being more you and diving into the things that you do or you like or you're drawn to. And instead of thinking you have to appeal to everybody, just find those people who really resonate with the same thing that you do or the message that you do, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's really cool. I'm thinking about you being having your private practice and being a professional listener, basically. And so you really listened to what your audience was wanting. That's cool. Well, it it did help me, like I said, in terms of my practice. In the beginning, I was kind of like, oh, well, I'm opening, hanging up my shingle. I'm opening my practice, whoever wants to come. And like with a lot of businesses, I think I think the same thing applies. It's good to find your people that you're a really good fit for. And we don't have to be good for everyone. You know, therapists tend to think, oh, I'll see everyone, like I'll see anyone who needs help. But I'm actually not good at everything. I might not be good at a particular problem that people are having or a demographic, say. But I, am really good at the thing that I'm super interested in because that sort of feeds on itself. I'll stay interested in that. I'll always be reading more about that and researching more about that. So I just kind of went into the realm of emotional neglect and how it affects people's relationships. And so then I sort of talked more about that, which attracts the people that are interested in that. And it lets your work continue to feel really alive because you'll stay in your lane of what you're super interested in. And as you go forward, it just, you are excited. The people that you are seeing are also interested in the same subject. So I feel like it helps you 
avoid burnout for one thing, because you're really focusing on what you do best. Yeah, you're not pulled in all different directions. And also, there are probably other people out there that could help those others better than you. And so you're just really focusing on the ones that you know that you can make an impact on. That's so great. Absolutely. And I'm so glad you said that, Karen, too, because it's being very humble in a way about like, I I literally can't help everyone. But if you come in to see me and say you have an issue with like sleep issues, then I know someone over here who's really good at that. And that's exactly who you should be seeing. You're going to get the most support and expertise. So everyone should basically be siphoned to the people that like, when you walk in the door, that therapist is so excited to see you because they're like, yay, another person in my area that I love talking about this. (laughs) Yeah. Your career as a marriage and family therapist and mental health counselor makes you an expert on emotion, loss, and grief, but your book stemmed from a specific project. Would you mind telling us a little bit about that? Yeah, I kind of started the Instagram and thought of it as kind of a uh, an emotions project. Like I just wanted to talk more about feelings because it just seems like the thing that uh, people struggle with. And it's so basic to who we are as human beings. Just, you know, we're born with this full potential of an emotional life. And I feel like the world and adults and everything like starts to teach you how to feel less, how to sort of desensitize yourself to your feelings. I think that that's what causes like a lot of emotional pain when people grow up is because they have lost access to this information that they need because your feelings are like the most personal expression of yourself who you are. They tell you what you need. They tell you how you're doing in life. We we need that information. Yeah. So when you shut it down, you can't really, no one knows how to react and you don't know how to react because we've gotten a bit numb. Yes, exactly. You don't know, like, is this situation good for me? Is this person, this relationship, is this job good for me? I can't tell. I don't know how to read my feelings about it. Maybe I'm even a little numbed out. Maybe I don't even trust my feelings because I've been taught, oh, you can't trust your feelings about things. Right. So I was just, I think that was the extent of it. The project was, I want to talk more about emotions (laughs) in the world. And that was kind of it. And then um, when other people seemed to be interested in that, I was like, that's great. I'll just keep doing, doing more of this. The reason I was really drawn to Instagram in particular was because I used to be an art student and I really liked the visual aspect of Instagram. And um, so I think it appealed to my sort of um, aesthetic as well. Also, I felt like it was really changing as well. Instagram was changing from just being a place of just like taking photographs of things in the beginning, people didn't write. They just, it was just a photograph. And I started to notice the people that I followed that contrary to what everyone says, like, oh, people have really short attention spans, write short things, write brief, punchy, you know, catchy things, which I tried doing in the beginning, like trying to keep whatever I want to talk about to like a sentence or two. And I started noticing that other people were writing more in their captions and that Instagram actually for me 
had taken the place of reading blogs. Like it was like a one-stop shop. I could read them. And the people that I followed were the people who wrote more in the caption, who actually wrote a lot and had a lot to say. Those were the people I was starting to follow because I like knowing about people. I like knowing people's stories. And when they have things to say, that's just because I'm a curious person. So I started saying more. So I think that was an interesting thing. The contrary to the idea that people have short attention spans and just want like easy, punchy information. I don't find that to be true. I actually found in this, you know, beginning of this project that people want more information about their emotional lives. And anyway, that's kind of how it got started. And then in somewhere in the first year or two, I would often give people a reference to read about something. They, they would say, how can I read more about this particular topic? And then it's some, I would cite other people's books that I liked. And someone said, um, would you write a book? And I was like, okay, okay. So I just, I was like, okay. And again, that was like the creative side of me that was like, okay, I can figure this out. Would yeah. be That might be fun. So I did. I just kind of like spent a few weeks, a month or so, just kind of like designing a book, you know, made a few versions, changed it, looked at it, added more. And I still can't quite believe it that I literally had this one book. It was like 55 pages. And I just took the notes that had been the most popular on Instagram and put them all together. I just held up the little one book that I had and asked anybody who wanted to pre-order it, you know, to just like, let me know. I sold a bunch of them that day, that morning, like in the first morning, like almost 500 immediately just from, and I didn't, I think I had like 1500 or 2000 people following me at that point too. So that's sort of what led to I don't know, writing, I guess, next, where I started to think like, oh, this would be, I was going to start to do more books like that. And then my agent called me in the second year and she said, I I saw your little book and would you be interested in like trying to find a publisher for it and making something bigger out of it? So it was all totally an adventure just from the very beginning. Just, I saw it as like, I want to talk about some things I want to talk about. <laughs> That's kind of how it started. Yeah. But how wonderful that Instagram was originally this place where it was almost entirely visual. And then you were able to translate writing into an image and share it. And that translated so nicely into your book section on how to know how you feel really stuck out to me. Why do you think this is so important? And how does it impact everything we do this concept of knowing how we feel? I love that question, McKenna. It's one of my favorite subjects is that I think just the mechanics of people's feelings is kind of, it kind of goes awry during childhood, because I think what happens is that if you're if you're growing up with adults who un, who understand their own emotional life it's just kind of you learn it by watching but most of us live in a culture most of us have parents that struggle a bit there's a lot of what i think there's a lot of emotional neglect in the in the in the culture at large so what most of us have is like parents that are kind of avoidant of 
difficult emotions of their own. So we quickly learn as children, it's not okay to be sad, or my parents don't like it when I'm sad, or, or, you know, they can't handle feelings too. My feeling like feelings are something to avoid, something to kind of shut down and kind of minimize and maybe even like deny, like, no, I don't feel fine. I don't feel sad. I mean, I feel fine. We kind of grow on the wrong trajectory instead of feeling and knowing how we feel. We lose touch with what we feel and even the mechanics of it. And so most people can figure out how it works when I say that feelings are in your nervous system. They're just signals from your body. And you know the physical feelings of I'm hungry, I'm tired, I'm cold, I'm you know stressed out, I'm um, that kind of thing. You know the physical sensations. You know what it feels like to be hungry. You, you're very familiar with what it feels like when you're tired. The same thing applies to your emotions. They have body sensations that go with them. You know, anxiety may feel like your shoulders are up. Shame may feel like you get all hot in your face. Nervousness is totally, for me, it's in my stomach. That is where the information about your feelings is. And so when you start to think about it, it just, it literally just takes practice. Everyone can do it. We used to have it as little kids, but we got used to kind of the habit of avoiding those feelings and trying to shut those feelings out. Yeah, that is true. I was kind of thinking like as a parent, you know, parents are busy and you know, not comfortable with their own feelings. And you saying all that made me really think about how unappealing sometimes it is when a kid shares their emotions, whether they're angry or frustrated or sad. It's just like, I don't have time for that. Because children also share their emotions really raw. I imagine that they get looks like, you know, stop crying, stop whining, stop this, stop that, stop that. And I wonder if that's where that comes from. You just made me think about that. Oh, totally, Karen. I think you're on the money. I think that it's interesting to think about this during the pandemic too, when for a lot of people, life has slowed down. But I think a big thing that gets in the way of knowing how we feel and being able to feel how we feel is that life is so fast. And I don't know about you, but when I grew up, we were being rushed all the time, Um, rushed to school, rushed through school during the day, you know, it just felt like the pace of life was really fast. And it takes time a lot to sort of, even for me right now, to know how I feel. And it doesn't happen the more chaotic my life is getting, then then it'll take me a week to realize, oh my God, I'm so stressed out over this particular thing. I didn't know (laughs) that. From three months ago that just caught up with me. (laughs) Exactly, exactly, exactly. And then it's kind of a vicious cycle because people, then when those feelings come up, you may have these coping skills, you're not comfortable with it. So you stay busy or you stay doing the things that help you avoid that feeling. So it's kind of a vicious circle. But I absolutely relate. And um, when I think about my earlier parenting, as I have three kids, I definitely had that feeling. I mean, the only skill that I had as a young parent were the ones that I grew up with, which were oh, you're sad. Well, you know, go to your room until you've calmed down or 
you're upset about something. Well, I don't want to hear that. You know, I'm, I'm more upset, something like that. Like I like to call that out madding someone like I would, <laughs> yeah, I, love that. I would out mad anyone who was mad at me just, you know, so just to stop them another way of stopping them. But what I realized through the, my work in the last, you know, decade or so has been that I don't do that with people so much but the the beginning of it had to be i had to back up and get comfortable with my own feelings because as i've learned to be more okay about feeling anger or sadness just inside of myself i don't rush to shut that down in other people anymore because it just looks normal to me now mm-hmm. people my kids get sad my kids get upset about things it doesn't mean they get what they want it doesn't mean I get what I want. There was also a thing I think that I remember growing up, which was like, I couldn't acknowledge someone else's sadness or anger. That meant I had to do something about it. The example I could use is like, one of my kids could say, I don't want to go to school today. I hate, you know, this class. I hate this day. I hate Mondays. And I would shut down that child from even saying that because I would think, oh, I've got to fix their anger or shut it down, one or the other. But what I've learned is that it's perfectly okay to be angry about things. And here we go, we're going to go off and go to work or go to school or go and do the thing. But I can still acknowledge, yeah, I can say like, I know, I'm, I'd be so mad too. I was so mad on the way to school a lot to my kid, I can say that. And here we go, because we have to go to school today. Dr. Becky Kennedy, we interviewed her during our parenting series, and she has something that she says often, which is two things are true. So two things are true. You're very upset that you can't have this technology. And also your technology time is over. (laughs) You know, these two things are true, and that's okay. And like you mentioned, too, that we can be taught this concept of you can't trust your feelings. So how might we then teach our children to fully understand their own feelings and see them as valuable and kind of steer away from deeming our feelings or those of others as good or bad? Oh, another great question. Thank you. And one of the things that for me is like, so, I don't know, I find this so exciting to talk about. Parents will often ask, like, how can I teach my child this? How can I teach my child you know, to talk more about their feelings or to be more respectful of other people, whatever the thing is they want to teach. And I feel like you don't have to do so much. You just have to work on it yourself. Here's the way kids learn. They're wired to learn this way by watching. It's not through words. It's not through like ABC. Here's the steps to take to know when you're overtired or you're stressed out and you need a break. It's much more fluid than that. When you have parents do it, they show you the mechanics of it. Like, oh, I watch how mom says, oh, I'm feeling kind of sad and overwhelmed today. I'm going to go like sit down and just read for a few minutes until I can, you know, feel better or something like that. That's the way children actually learn a lot of these skills is by watching. And that's why we have so many people saying like, I can't get my kid to, you know, show me some respect. But like, when you think about it, I'm not actually showing my kid much respect. What they need to see is watch what it looks like when a person is showing someone else respect. 
and there's there our brains are so smart we are learning we're getting so much information in watching how it works I like to say it's kind of like cats and kittens. The mother cat doesn't sit down and talk to her kids about how to hunt prey. She does it and they watch and they practice. They practice, they make trial and error, you know, they just, but they watch by imitation, which is why when we grow up and we leave home, we have learned so many of the habits that we did from our parents. It doesn't matter what we wish we could do, or we have this embodied experience of how it works from having watched the adults in our lives mostly. Yeah, that's a great point. I think what people have been wanting, or at least when I think about myself as a kid, and I hope I'll, you know, kids I think are kind of universal, the feelings they have about life and the future. I wanted to figure out how I could be me. I wanted to like grow up, become more me and figure out how I could be more me in the world and be accepted and be, you know, just feel like I got to be authentically me in this life while I still had a chance. And um, I think emotions are tied to that. So I feel like doing the work to reconnect to how you feel, tune into how you feel about things about your life and how you're doing is reconnecting with yourself. And the more that you get comfortable doing that, the more it kind of grows. You kind of can't go backwards. You kind of want to feel more about who you are because that information about your feelings is kind of telling you what you need in life too. Anyway, I think I'm a big fan of people sort of getting a chance while they still have time to really enjoy being who they are in this world, connect with other people who make you feel valued also. That's really beautiful. Well, we had just wrapped up our parenting series where we discussed tough conversations that we have with our young people and how to explain the challenges of their world around them. And even sometimes I think about my son is a teenager and I don't always celebrate his unique experience, who he is fully inside. And that must be really challenging um, for, for young people to not feel like they can be their authentic selves. I feel like parenting is kind of about how to enjoy your own life, like being in pursuit of your own life and your own creativity and your own joy so that your kids kind of learn oh, this is what adulthood looks like so that we can be in relationships with people, but that we can also be separate people with maybe even private inner lives. Like um, I always felt like I wanted to kind of completely be there for my kid and they would, for my kids, and they would tell me everything, but they get to have a boundary around their own sort of privacy and who they are as well as I do. So it's about I don't know. I think it's about kind of, you know, there's something that Johnny Webb, who's one of my inspirations, I often refer people to her book on childhood emotional neglect. And I think she said, you don't have to do it right all the time. You just have to do it right some of the time. And I think she said, if there's like 40%, you can say like, I see my kids sadness or that they're upset. 
that's enough. Like none of us needs to have somebody seeing our every emotion a hundred percent of the time. Right. Yeah. Like that would make us, yeah, we'd be sort of like, have exactly. We'd have big heads too. You know, it's just, <laughs> if you can sometimes sort of see into the inner lives of people that we love just some of the time, I feel like that's what people need. And that's to me, that's like good enough parenting, that expression, um, good enough, being a good enough parent. Yeah, I like that. All people, children, adults need to feel like they can be their authentic self. And I love that you brought that up. One of the best things about this podcast for us is all the amazing and insightful people we've met. Throughout each of our series, we've seen many common threads. That's why we created the Health It's Personal Inspiration Line to celebrate our unique perspectives and let others around us know that we get it too. We teamed up with artist Cloud Ramkey to help bring these common threads to life. We've all dealt with challenges in our lives that make us stronger. Hence, our new favorite saying, thanks for the trauma. We make sure to remind our listeners and friends that you're not alone and that it's always a judgment-free zone because that's where the best conversations start. Our designs are on t-shirts, sweaters, hoodies, water bottles, coffee mugs, stickers, and so much more. These are great gifts for friends, loved ones, educators, caretakers, and advocates to help show your people that you care about their health and well-being. Head over to bonfire.com slash thehippodcast, our website, or our show notes for links to the merchandise, and stay tuned for future inspirational designs and messages too. What advice would you give people who are struggling to validate their own feelings during this challenging time when so many other people are suffering? Wow, that's a hard one, isn't it? Right after a long time of feeling like you're not supposed to feel whatever it is about this. I think that I would say, and in this instance, I'm going to just talk about my own journey with this, my own particular experience with it. I guess I would say that I do a combination of individual work on it and relationship work on it. And what that means is like, Well, I write a lot. I've been a journaler since I was a little kid. So if there's something I'm feeling a lot of shame about feeling or struggling with feeling, or I can't seem to, you know, get it to shift or something, I tend to write a lot about it. I tend to journal about it. See what this um, experience or feeling is reminding me of. A lot of times that's really helpful just to kind of break down some of the sense of if I'm feeling shame about a particular emotion, I'm not really ready necessarily to talk about it, but I will sort of give that to myself the space to at least write it down because it's okay to want to explore what it's about. So then the next category would be the relationship aspect, I suppose. I talk about it with someone that I trust. I and what I mean by that is someone who won't say oh, don't feel that way. You shouldn't feel that way. You've got a good life. You shouldn't feel that way. Or just look at the bright side. Things are going to, you know what I'm, you know what I mean? It's sort of like the toxic positivity. (laughs) Yes. uh, Yes. Cause that will just actually take me back to the shame thing about like, uh Oh, that wasn't safe to say. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I have had to, and this is, this is not easy. And I don't mean to make it sound like it's easy. I'm in my fifties. It's taken me a very long time to figure out. This is not a one and done. I think that's what I'm trying to say. It has taken me a long time to unravel 
again, some of the coping habits I had as a kid, which were to not tell people that you're struggling or having a hard time and learn that it's okay to talk to people. But here's the clincher. It has to be the right people. Mm -hmm. If I go back to old people that trigger old wounds in me about it's shameful to feel this way or, you know, just look at the bright side in life, then I'm just going to be in that same cycle of feeling bad about how I feel. I've had to actually teach myself to find people who are more comfortable, I guess, with their own emotions and therefore my emotions. And that's what helps because I do think that another part of our part of what it is to be a human being is that we're very relational. We need other people. A lot of this stuff is not meant to be carried alone. So I do some of it on my own because I like to do that self-exploration, but we have a real natural instinct for turning to other people when we need help. And that's really hard in this pandemic right now. Yeah. So being able to have a moment for yourself, shame-free of exploring your emotions and understanding them, and then communicating that to somebody you trust. I think that's great advice. Yeah. That kind of ties into what you said earlier about two things can be true at the same time, too, because a lot of people are feeling that guilt because there are so many others who might be suffering more than we are right now, but it's still valid to feel that way for ourselves, too. It doesn't negate the other. (laughs) It's so true. And um, someone recently used this expression for me, and I've been thinking about it a lot. And we can get so caught up in like, what should? I should be feeling this or, you know, I shouldn't be feeling this. And someone said to me, like, I just, all I want to deal with right now is what is. And what is, is this is a feeling I'm experiencing right now. That doesn't matter what I should. I mean... It's the same concept of like, I shouldn't be hungry. I just ate this morning. Nevertheless, <laughs> my body says I'm hungry right now. So that's, <laughs> that's what is. Well, that's a, that's a big one. Um, and it kind of ties into our next topic about grief, because that's a, a huge topic that everyone needs to talk about. And it's something that's close to all of us as well. We've kind of experienced a lot of grief in our lives. And I think this is something that a lot of people this past year, especially, are kind of coming to terms with in handling grief. And especially when it comes to that um, ambiguous loss, we're losing so many things in life right now, whether it's a loved one or if it's the way our lives used to be. Um, So your experience with grief started as a little girl and has been something you've been working on basically your entire life. As you just said, it's an ongoing process um, and you've made it your life's work. What types of grief do you see people facing? Oh, I think a lot. Like you said, Sean, um, so many things like people, for sure, people we love, um, experiences that are over or relationships that have come to an end and we weren't necessarily ready for that. Things that we've loved in our life or opportunities we might have missed a chance for that are never going to come back. I just feel like the list is long when you're comfortable dealing with grief to go ahead and let yourself process loss and grief around whatever that might be. 
I think that you really kind of can't go wrong with giving yourself room to grieve because I find that the people who um, are comfortable letting themselves do that tend to experience kind of more joy in their life on the other end because you can kind of appreciate the unavoidably hard parts of life and then you're like when something really joyous or magical happens in your life, like no matter how small, it's like you're happier with like some of the simpler things in life, I think, too. Yeah. The smallest things can make me happy now. Like a friend's dog likes me and runs up and like curls up. Like that makes me so happy if a dog right. likes me. That's one of the me. best things. <laughs> <laughs> or a little kid, a little kid likes yeah. me. It's like mm-hmm. those kind of things make me really happy nowadays. Instead of really facing our grief and experiencing it and feeling it and feeling all the emotions, if we kind of try to just skip over it and and kind of integrate it into the rest of our lives in small ways without giving it our full attention, all the other aspects of our lives will suffer and we won't be able to give it our all in other areas because we haven't resolved our emotions with this grief that we've been facing too, I think. Yeah. And I think part of the, um, maybe the inexperience with processing grief that people have, people can be very black and white about feelings sometimes like I should be done with this grief by now, or when will it be over? I just don't think that any feelings work that way, actually. And the thing is, people will say things like, oh, I'll let myself be sad for a little while, but you know, I don't want to fall into it or stay there or get stuck there. I just want to be moved through it. There, People tend to be like really wanting to move through the difficult feelings. But the thing is, they're all coming back. They're all eventually coming back. We're not done with sadness. We're not done with grief because we've gotten through the bulk of it right now. Yeah. <laughs> you guys all sound like you've had your own experiences. I'd be interested to know if you feel like sharing where you're at with it, but I basically have come to the conclusion like I will never be done grieving some of the people that I have lost. They're just a part of me now and I actually don't would can't even imagine wanting to be done mm-hmm. with that experience. So that's not to say I'm grieving like 24/7 all the time, often it'll fade away for a while, but an anniversary date will come back up and I'll be feeling it again for a while. And now I just know that's just the way it works. I'll keep mine brief, but I'm very fortunate to have great family and friends who are kind of supportive in that way because, okay, let's talk about it. It's been 20 years, but let's <laughs> let's have a fond memory. Let's um, Here's a great photograph I just found or you know, today's today would make this, you know, this many years, or this would have been their birthday. You don't know what'll trigger it, but you'll see something and it'll remind you of them or, you know, it would have been great to share this, <laughs> this experience or this news. Um, and you don't know when that'll pop up. So you just have to be ready for it to come back at any time and be ready. Yeah, I love that, Sean. I think what I've also learned from having a second experience of grief in my adult life was my mom died when I was little. But I had a different, like the first half of my life was totally different when it came to grief. We never talked about her again. It was the strangest thing. It was as if she had never been there. One day she was there and then no one ever mentioned her name again. And again, as I said, we were just following the adults' leads. The adults never talked about her. So we learned never talk about her. 
One of the things that I learned later on um, when I had a second go around with grief, which somehow, you know, it just didn't seem like lightning should strike. And I kind of didn't realize that I thought I should be off the hook for losing someone, (laughs) losing the second love of my life. Now, what I realized was at that point that I felt in a funny way. And I understand again, like the adults in my life were just coping the best way that they knew how. And they had parents that raised them the same way. So the only way they knew how was to not talk about it and get on with things. But what I realized was how much I had been almost robbed of my mother. What I had really wanted to know were the little things about her. Like, I wanted to hear other people who loved her say, oh, this is how she drank her coffee. Oh, this is what her face looked like when she was really mad. Oh, this is what she did, you know, on the weekends to relax. This was an expression of hers. And all of that was lost to me. And I now, as an adult, when I lost my husband, I somehow got pulled into this, and I'm so grateful to them, this little group of two other widowed parents with kids. And that's where I learned that finding other people who aren't afraid of grief is really pretty incredible because we talk about them all the time now. Our kids talk about their missing parent all the time. It's a totally natural way to say, oh, here's where your dad, um, you know, took me one time to go swimming or they'll have memories. It's just normal to talk about these people and these experiences that have passed. It's nice actually to be able to keep them alive rather than to feel forced to say goodbye to them. And um, I assume this is when you say we don't have to associate grief with endings. This is I assume pretty much what you meant by that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, It's beautiful. I think a year after I lost someone, I was expecting to feel some relief because a year feels like a long time and it felt like it was just yesterday. And so I had to learn that you're never going to stop feeling those feelings. They'll just lighten a bit. And also that you don't want to because I noticed that the less emotional I felt, the less connected I felt to that person. And so I I value being able to kind of tap into remembering what it felt like to spend time together or laugh or, you know, whatever it is, because then even though those feelings can be difficult, sometimes you still feel that connection. Yeah, that's so true, McKenna. And you just described an experience where, it's like what we're talking about, the larger conversation, that that memory experience is also in your body. So when you're trying to avoid or numb thinking about that, again, it's like a, a disconnection from your body, from a body experience. And I feel like that just feels so painful to be disconnected. It kind of changed the subject a little bit. But on that note, um, taking care of ourselves is so important especially now more than ever, but always this is very important. Um, This is something we talk about a lot as well. And much of your book is dedicated to that self-care. We are all processing painful emotions, especially in the pandemic, and discovering 
that the importance of advocating for our emotional needs, asking for support, and countering those narratives of toxic positivity are so crucial. Uh, do you have any advice for those needing maybe a little bit more practice in this area? So for me, again, I think I might have said before, there's a there's like a two-part answer for me, and it's the individual part, and it's the relational part. So um, I know that I need a lot of solitude, especially when I'm feeling like really intense emotions. I can't necessarily be around people at that time because I'll try to like make them feel better and minimize how I'm feeling. So if I'm feeling a lot of sadness or something that just feels like overwhelming, I'll try to find a way to get some alone time. Oh my gosh. And when I said like figuring out what works for you, it can be for me like driving alone and listening to like the saddest music ever, the ones that I know, the songs that I know are going to make me cry or being alone and journaling and also being outdoors if possible is like another way for me to just like take a walk and just be alone a while with those feelings and just kind of let them come. That's really important because um, what we talked about earlier about being relational, you know, we need those other people and those connections. But I think sometimes people might take that too far and want to always be around others. And like you said, we, we sometimes need that solitude as well to kind of balance out and figure out what we're going through. That's a big part of it. I think it's just that's probably why the pandemic is extra hard is because you can't really busy yourself to the degree to avoid things that we were able to before. So it's literally front and center a lot of these overwhelming feelings that we might be experiencing for the first time, but also for such a protracted long time. That's funny. At the beginning of the pandemic, McKenna was home for a bit and we were running every day and eating healthy and kind of like just living our same lives in isolation kind of. And then as the prolong, like you're talking about, we started like needing different things. And I think we were prepared to handle ourselves in the short term. But when it ended That's up so funny. being like 18 months later. <laughs> oh my gosh, Karen, I totally forgot in the beginning, I kind of remember it was like everywhere, including me, everyone was thinking of this as like, oh, this is a chance for me to like take up yoga or start running, <laughs> yeah. learn how to knit, bake bread. And I guess that, you know, that might have been the extent of it. If it only lasted for a few months, we might never have come face to face with what happens for the long haul. I do think grief comes into it now because having our lives come to a sudden stop, you know, lives that we, we weren't ready for that. So it's a little bit overwhelming. The grief thing I think has so much to do with not knowing what's going to come next. In other words, when someone dies is very similar, the element that's similar to the pandemic is, I don't know what my life is going to look like after this. My old life is gone. Whatever comes after this is not me going backwards to that old life. It's me going forward into something that I don't know what that looks like. And so I feel like that is um, something that's probably weighing heavily on people right now. These are all ideas that you've mentioned that I think so many people are experiencing right now and could use some insight on. So this has been so incredibly helpful. 
Well, we're obsessed with your book. We're so thankful for you meeting with us and sharing all these great suggestions and ideas about how we might cope now and always, but especially now. Karen, that means so much to me. Thank you. As growing up as a kid who felt like you weren't supposed to talk about you know, how you felt about life and things like that. Um, That means so much to me. Thank you, the three of you for having me on your show. I'm really, I'm, I feel so um, grateful that you had me on. So do we. Yes, it's been such a pleasure. It's great to meet the three of you. You too. Great to meet you too. Bye-bye. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. You too. Bye. Thank you everyone for listening to this episode of Health It's Personal. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts for bonus episodes and new releases every Wednesday. The Health It's Personal podcast is produced by me, McKenna Udi, and hosted with the Phronesis Health Initiative team, Karen Jively and Sean Tingle. Special thanks to portrait artist Alexander, musical contributor Bernie Ramke, and to our guests and experts for their kindness and bravery in sharing their stories each week. Please listen, subscribe, engage, and send us topics we can explore that would help you on your journey. Because health, it's personal.